Welcome to Wonk, a podcast sounding out smart policy and the people behind it. I'm Edward Grinspawn. I think what to do about the collapse of media is going to be one of the three or four main issues in the next federal election. Pierre Polyev was making that obvious. Should the government support news organizations, essentially out of civic-mindedness, which is the liberal stance, or should it leave them alone to suffer and collapse? For at least 15 years now, the journalism business has been in an ever-worsening downward spiral of layoffs, shutdowns, bankruptcies, you name it. Most recently, it was Bell Media slashing newscasts and dumping radio stations and letting people go. And that prompted an emotional outburst from the PM, who called it a garbage decision by a company that should know better. A few weeks earlier, it was Black Press, and before that, Torstar, and so on it has gone. While the old news landscape fades, a clutch of smaller digital news startups and niche publications are emerging from the underbrush. How much they can fill the cracks and what might help them to do so is a question for some debate. Few have managed to thrive in both of these worlds. Our guest this week is one of the exceptions. For 30 years, Paul Wells was a stalwart of the national media establishment, writing for brand-name newspapers and magazines. He's a frequent talking head on the TV politics shows and an occasional author of books. His body of work will be recognized in April with this year's Hyman Solomon Award for Excellence in Public Policy Journalism. Today, Paul's insights and wit have been, as they say, disintermediated. He is his own boss with a buzzing substack and a podcast. His brand name now is, well, his name. We're delighted to have Paul Wells with us for this special episode that our team has dubbed Wonk on Wonk. We may well trade some war stories, but the main idea is to probe the possible futures of a business with which we both have a loving yet complex relationship. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks, Ed. So I just want to start with the Bell Media decision, which, as I've said, follows a whole bunch of other decisions of that sort. And so for the handful of people who don't yet subscribe to your Substack, let's talk about your take on that recently, your reaction to the announcement and your reaction to the reaction. Bell laid off a hell of a lot of people. I mean, the New Yorker magazine had a an essay on the state of the American media industry. I mean, directionally, it's the same. It's all headed downhill fast. But I totted up all of the layoffs that they listed in the New Yorker piece, and Bell laid off more people in one day than, than all of the companies that the New Yorker lists in the States. My hunch is that they had actually been slowing down their de-staffing while they waited to see what kind of world they would be in with all of the various subsidy mechanisms. They wanted to see whether they could hang on to some staff uh, in a world where all the various uh, digital media laws were in place. And I think they decided they couldn't and ended up cutting at just a hell of a lot of staff. Not all of them, I think, were, you know, it was also the telecom staff as well, right? Yeah. So the great majority were like cell phone salespeople and things like that. Yeah. And the last remnants of Radio Shack, things like that. But to me, it's symptomatic of a generalized collapse in the state of people's relationship with news gathering and certainly the state of news companies' ability to come up with a a workable business plan. People say that Bell is itself hugely profitable. My read of their answer is, yeah, sure, they're profitable about just everything they do that isn't news gathering. 
And so they're tired of news gathering. They'd rather just do the, the stuff that's profitable. The latest sign of really grave trouble in our journalism industry. Yeah, I wonder if it's uh, two signs and what that might tell us about the state of government these days, you know, perhaps. And, you know, one sign clearly is what you said, the sorry state of the industry that you are part of and I have been part of. And the other part, I guess, is they're talking about how government is uh, putting in various regulations that are reducing their capacity to be profitable and putting them below shareholder expectations, at least. So I wonder if that's a main feature. You know, it's a sort of a populist response in some ways. I wonder if that is a major feature of our modern politics. I mean, I think what to do about the collapse of media is going to be one of the three or four main issues in the next federal election. Pierre Polyev was making that obvious. Should the government support news organizations, essentially out of civic-mindedness, which is the liberal stance, or should it leave them alone to suffer and collapse because they're just going to produce news for liberals anyway, which is, I think, a fair paraphrase of Pierre Poiliev. And it's going to be a very difficult issue for journalists to cover because every working journalist will have a personal stake in the outcome of that election. And it'll be the very definition of a conflict of interest for every journalist covering that election. But that's for us to handle as journalists and for our audiences to figure out according to their own sense of what's right and proper. Well, I like the phrase there, uh, working journalists, because the working journalists and the no longer working journalists may have different <laughs> perspectives on that. Yeah. And I mean, I should say I get money when I work as a pundit for the CBC, and the total amount of money I get from all my CBC appearances is a fair bit less than what I get from my subscribers as an independent journalist. So I'm tainted, but less than some, if you view that as tainting. Now, well, let's come back to CBC later and, and the government program. So let's you know, circle back to this point. But I want to I spend a couple of minutes just figuring out who Paul Wells is and how he got to be Paul Wells. So if we rewind a minute to the origin story, you are from Sarnia. Some people suggest to me that you may be the most famous Sarnian, or you may have been until Chris Hadfield strummed a few bars of Major Tom. So how in your life and your upbringing did journalism enter your mind? Yeah, you know, Hadfield won that one because the airport is named Chris Hadfield. It's not named Paul Wells. So I grew up generally curious. I kind of thought I was going to be a doctor, but to say the least, I didn't have an overriding fascination for science and medicine. I, I was kind of interested in everything. In university, I started writing for the campus paper because I went to Western. It was Western Gazette. I learned that if you reviewed a concert, you could get in for free. Ah, so it was the music passion before the journalism passion. Oh, very much so. And then that led me to write the first article I wrote. The second one I wrote because I had a crush on the entertainment editor and I wanted to go back. By the time I figured out that everybody had a crush on the entertainment editor, I started to realize I was actually good at this and I kind of enjoyed it. And so when I flunked out a second year chemistry, a contributing factor was that I was spending more time at the campus paper than I was in my coursework. And so I switched into political science and stayed at the campus paper and the rest is history. So you've written about your late dad, who was a teacher and an education administrator, someone who you said had a, a hunger for life and knowledge, and even wrote a self-published autobiography later in his life. And he, uh, as I understand, would take to the library every weekend to get a new pile of books. That sort of seems to be feeding the curiosity that you're talking about. So how much are you like your dad? I'm a hell of a lot like my dad, Alan Wells, who was a high school math teacher and then went on to essentially be the clerk of the Privy Council for the school board. 
I'm so much like him that I've never grown a beard because he wore a beard all of my life. And if I had a beard, I would look like him as much as I sound like him and I would just confuse people. Yeah, the weekly trips to the library were a big deal because he would freaking ransack the library. Like from every section of the library, he might have a book on Macedonian history, a novel from the Caribbean. He might have how-to books, science, not a lot of poetry. Uh, And the strong cue that I took from that was that everything is interesting. If you're not interested in something, that's not the subject's fault. That's your failure to figure out what you can get out of it. And it also made me a lifelong grazer. I mean, we would usually take last week's books back next week, whether or not we had come anywhere close to finishing any of them. And so I grew up comfortable with the notion of not finishing a book. You dive into the middle of it for what you need, and you don't worry too much about being a completist. Some of my friends who are take more pride in finishing every book they start don't understand me. But I'm like, I've never expected anyone to read all of my stuff. As you're saying that, I'm thinking, you know, back in the old days when you and I worked for newspapers and they came in the printed variety and people on airplanes, you'd watch them reading them and you can watch them reading your story and then not following it to the turn of the second half of the story or something. This would not offend you, apparently. That would seem normal. If anyone reads anything more than zero of what I've written, to me, that's a victory. Okay, so one of the things I also admire about you is that, you know, you come from this very Anglo region of the country, yet you perhaps will yourself to become fully bilingual. How did you do that, and why was that so important to you? That comes from my dad, too. He was from Alberta, grew up in a farming family, moved to Ontario in the 60s to teach, and he bought into the whole Pierre Trudeau bilingualism thing. And so... By the time I was in grade school, he could speak a kind of a rudimentary French. And I took from him the cue that it was important to get decent grades in everything, but that the French courses mattered more than the other courses. And then you'd go on student exchanges to Quebec, and I really liked it over there. And so later when I was working summer jobs, I worked supervising student exchanges for younger students and things like that. And the most astonishing stroke of luck in my life. My last year of university, I applied for summer jobs at 13 newspapers. And the only one that offered me a job was the Montreal Gazette. And I stayed at the Gazette for nine years. And by then I was, you know, improving my French was part of my job, but also just a source of pride for me. Well, I think that's when I first met you, when you were in the Montreal Gazette in Ottawa, arrived in Ottawa, and I was the uh, beer chief for the Globe and Mail. And by then you were already fully bilingual. So... It worked. I was astonished that most English-speaking reporters in Ottawa didn't speak French. I had always assumed it was a job requirement. And it has always been a bit of a competitive edge, is that at least I can understand what the Francophones are saying when they're talking. Well, speaking of competitive edges, let's just talk for a couple minutes about you as your switch to news entrepreneur. So you abruptly left the magazine you worked at when, as you have described it, it lost interest in covering politics. Do you see that changeover emblematic in ways of contemporary Canadian journalism, both established media losing interest in certain things and people finding new ways to express themselves in their journalism? The change of mandate that McLean's undertook was unusually stark. I mean, look at my other former employers. National Post still covers politics. Montreal Gazette still covers politics. Toronto Star still covers politics. They've had varying degrees of success at being full-service operations, but they haven't sort of completely given up on on what used to animate them. 
Look, I'm capable of being catty about McLean's decisions, but I believe that's probably boring for people. So it's their right to put out the kind of magazine they want. There was just no place in that magazine for me. And I made that decision before I even began to think about what I was going to do next. My wife is a consultant. She makes a good living. I could have retired. So I figured I would try other stuff. And if it didn't work out, I would retire. (laughs) And honestly, starting a subscription newsletter, look, on the day I quit McLean, someone said, well, he's going to Substack. And I thought, no, independent journalism is for losers. (laughs) Uh, But I looked into it. I had an acquaintance who worked at Substack and got some sort of basic information. And then I decided I would try it. And if I made a certain minimum amount of money, then it would at least be a a decent hobby. If I had something I wanted to write, I couldn't sell it freelance to one of the big shops. I could put it out and amuse people. Very quickly, I ascertained that there was a real demand, that the kind of journalism I've been doing for 30 years was a kind of journalism that some people still wanted to read. How's that working? My audience is smaller than it would have been at McLean's. Like, so in the good years at McLean's, I was assuming that what I wrote would reach about 350,000 pairs of eyeballs. As of today, I'm closing on 22,000 total subscribers. Most don't pay. They can't all uh, read everything that I write because some of the stuff I, I put behind paywalls. The audience that I can deliver to a newsmaker if I write about them is notionally about 22,000. And I would say in most ways it's better Because that audience is just scary engaged. My open rate for the emails I send out is around 60%. From the comments, it's clear that almost everyone reads every word once they open the email. And so I have the hungriest, most interested political audience in Canada. And writing for my subscribers produces a very different reaction from when I was writing for sort of random freelance clients. In what way? I mean, I don't want to overstate things, but it's a moment in their day when I send them something to read. I hear that back from them. And it's a strangely intimate thing because it's showing up in their inbox as email, right? And so they feel like we have a correspondence going on. And that's something that I don't feel like messing with. (laughs) I really don't want to send these people crap. And that's an aspect of it that I've been a bit surprised by. Because Lord knows I've written a lot of crap. No, that's not quite what I'm saying, but. (laughs) You know, 22,000 of 350,000 sounds actually quite impressive to me. But the Globe and Mail, we had 1 million readers a day. We always fooled ourselves into thinking that 1 million people were reading us every day. And then when we started measuring clicks on the internet and began to measure how many people are looking at this, now it wasn't, of course, the full readership, but you could know how many unique viewers there were. It was tiny. So 22,000 might be more than we're reading you previously. Who knows? And certainly you have that intensity of the relationship, which is what you're speaking about mostly in the power. And you have a real two-way relationship, right? Yeah. It's um, like to anticipate the question, and it's worth talking about, is it the future of journalism? I don't know. It's a future of journalism, and it's tremendously satisfying for me. The biggest surprise is that the last two years of my career rank among the two or three best periods of my entire time doing journalism. It's about as fun right now as it was in the first year or so of the National Post. It's about as fun as it was my first year at the Montreal Gazette. I'm learning so much, and I feel like I'm doing something that is valued. 
Well, you totally anticipate the question, because the question was, do you think that this could be replicated by many people, or is it more the exception than the rule? I mean, you have a big brand name, you wrote the kind of journalism that attracts people to the name, your personality could be on your journalism. So is this something that a lot of people can do? It's something that a lot of people can do. They would probably not be able to anticipate the same reaction. I mean, I say, people ask me, how can I follow your lead and I say, well, step one is to spend 30 years building your brand. You can't skip that step, right? <laughs> you can develop a reputation based on what you're writing right now, but the growth curve is shallower and it takes longer to build an audience. And it's harder in Canada than in the United States because the effective market is one-tenth as big. Substack writers are a bit of a community. There's a sort of a social media hangout. It's like a sort of a Twitter equivalent called Substack Notes, where writers compare notes and what I see is the sort of network effects and the ability to get attention based on the fact that you're part of a community of writers is much more powerful for American substackers than for Canadian. My growth rates have been really satisfying. A few American writers get just absurd growth rates. They're just like putting out buckets and subscribers are falling into them, you know? Build it and they will come as great model. Having said that, I think you and I both know that the percentage of Canadians who actually have digital subscriptions is, you know, between 10 and 15 percent. So it does, I guess, beg the question about the news gathering that you talked about earlier. You stand on the shoulders of people who are gathering news. You need things to comment on. Is this a sustainable proposition for them? Basically, no. I was talking on a panel show last Friday, and the anchor clearly took me to be asserting that we could replace Bell Media with Substack. That's absurd on its face, and I'm a sort of a gentleman pundit out here hanging my shingle out. That's not going to replace the Sarnia Observer or the Kingston Whig Standard or whatever your favorite local paper is. And that's a problem, which we can discuss further. I guess all I would say is... Clearly, neither is Bell Media going to replace those newspapers. <laughs> Clearly, neither is Les Coop de l'Info, which is the syndicate of six newspapers outside Montreal and Quebec City, which a month ago stopped publishing on paper forever. They're now just six websites. And their ability to make a profit is compromised. Post Media, TVA, I mean, we could run down the, the rogues gallery. My thing can't replace the journalism that we grew up with. But plainly, neither can the journalism we grew up with sustain itself in the current environment. So how does that come out of the wash, though? Because, you know, you wrote in your recent column about Bell Media that all the government plans so far haven't prevented this from happening. Then again, we don't really know the counterfactual. Maybe post-media will be gone by now. Maybe the Globe and Mail won't survive. Maybe, you know, a number of those publications you've talked about. Maybe the 45 radio stations that Bell turned over to new owners, perhaps they might not have been interested in them. Is that a high enough consequence to justify public involvement? I think a reasonable proxy for the counterfactual is a, the United States, where they have all been thrown to the market wolves, and the decline curve is very similar there to here. I think a reasonable comparative case is the startup journalism market in Canada, which has some green shoots, including Village Media, which never liked any of the proposed government remedies, has a network of now more than a dozen local news operations across Ontario announced yesterday that they're going to open in downtown Toronto in a couple months. 
Which will be, I think, number 24. Like, and their stuff is not sort of world-beating, pick-your-job-off-the-floor local journalism, but it's solid and respectable. It covers real things, and it covers them with real journalistic merit, and they're growing aggressively. So I wrote about all this in great detail at the beginning of the summer, the transition from traditional media to the current mess. And the conclusion I've reached is that the original case is misleading because the original case, which is sort of the newspaper world of the 1970s, when everyone had to talk to us, everybody had to read to us, and everybody had to sell advertising to us, was, I think, a market bubble based on that confluence of the near monopoly on commerce and the near monopoly on information. It was a kind of a coincidence of history that newspapers in particular, the parallel to electronic media is a little shakier, but it was just kind of an accident of history that newspapers had incredible thick, bulging, classified ad sections and were therefore able to field huge news-gathering staffs that politicians couldn't ignore. As soon as that corner on the market of retail and person-to-person commerce goes away, then the staffing model goes away, the respect goes away, the audience goes away, and it's really not obvious how you can get back to anything that resembles that status quo ante. I've started to say to governments, look, if you're going to be in the subsidizing journalism game, then stop messing around. The quantum that you need to pony up is multiples of what you've been paying so far. If you're going to run the risk of being seen to buy journalism, if you're going to be putting every journalist out of conflict of interest because the remedies that you propose is not unanimously supported by all the political parties, and if you're going to create a sort of a wax museum simulacrum of old-style journalism in a new century, then at least have the decency to not fund it at about one-fifth of what it needs to be funded at. I think we're seeing that in Quebec, and, and politicians in Quebec, where a subsidy model is much more widely accepted, are starting to say, we need to really ratchet up the scale of the, of the investment. And I think the Trudeau government in this battle, they're fielding precisely enough soldiers to lose. I think one of the difficulties here may be that, you know, let's say $100 million is going to be the Google money. So first of all, whatever public money there is clearly can't have the effect of stifling innovation and new entrants to the field. It can't be a way of holding the legacy into place. So policy has to be designed in that way. If you up the quantum then you may up the sense of dependence, you know, as well. So I keep being concerned because if you take the Google money and the government money together, they now will probably amount to about 50% or more than 50% of a journalist's salary. There's some psychological barrier in my mind that even somebody who accepts public money, as I do as a, a necessary evil, not something that I seek, but as a necessary evil to tide us over to let those green shoots, you know, actually really take root, over 50%, man, that doesn't seem healthy to me. And it's worse than that. What you absolutely can't deliver is audience. And we're starting to see experiments where news organizations are, are offering large numbers of free subscriptions just to test that. To what extent is cost a barrier? And in some of these experiments, you're seeing audiences, substantial numbers of people turning down free subscriptions because they don't even have the time to read whatever their local paper has become. And so you run the risk of paying enough to keep a newsroom open, paying enough to keep some people on the payroll, but news consumption habits have changed so much that people aren't even interested in 
what results even if they're not paying. Well, totally. And what you've said before about the 21st century, so the barriers to entry are very low. A lot of people can enter. The system can't sustain that many people to produce journalism, even in a market system. So it's going to become like marijuana shops. There's going to be like five on every four corners, and then most of them are going to go to business at some point. That's, I guess, how markets work. The better ones will survive. Yeah. I'm expecting some kind of shakeout at some point. At the end of the year, as people decided what their budgeting was going to look like for 2024, I had an uptick in people canceling and saying they can't afford. And by uptick, I mean it went from the high single digits into the low double digits, right? Like it's not a lot. It's trivial on my total subscriber numbers, but it's a thing I noticed. And I expect that there's going to come a time when, for whatever reason, subscribing to a half dozen substacks is going to stop being something that even the cool kids do. I have no illusion that my subscriber numbers are going to keep growing indefinitely. That doesn't feel like how the modern world works. You know, the only justification for supporting journalistic enterprises is that they're so essential to democracy and the functioning of a democracy. Do you worry when you look at the state of journalism today or when you think about how it might be tomorrow? So I don't know whether the current shaky state of our democratic discourse justifies propping up news organizations. Neither am I super interested in contesting that assertion. I'm happy to agree with you that our democracy is in lousy shape. And it's in lousy shape because too many of our practitioners don't think that they can afford the luxury of explaining what they're doing clearly. And that extends to a marked reluctance to feel difficult questions from the journalists that are out here. Like, in my entire career, I've never been as used to getting no answer or terrible answers from politicians as I am now. It's not because I'm independent and someone else has more legitimacy. The Globe and Reuters and the CBC are getting lousy answers too. And there's whole large elements of public policy that clearly people in government have decided they don't need to bother explaining to us. Trudeau government is now dealing with some blowback on international student visas because they made a bigger decision to build the economic recovery on low-wage, low-skilled temporary work rather than on the high-wage, high-skilled jobs of tomorrow that they came to office claiming they were going to deliver. That's a very large decision, very consequential. If you can point me to the speech that the finance minister or the prime minister or the industry minister has made in which they outline this plan, I'd be grateful because I haven't seen it, right? You can have 600 more reporters on the Hill than you had yesterday, and they can be paid however you want to pay them. If nobody's going to explain how they are governing us, or if nobody on the other side can explain how they plan to govern us, then it seems to me that it's just, the rest of it is just kabuki theater. Well, more reporters might be able to ferret out more information in places. You know, when you and I arrived on the Hill, there were specialists and there was a social policy reporter, there was a finance reporter, there was a defense reporter, there was a foreign affairs reporter, there were all kinds of people in bureaus who specialized. But I don't think the crisis and democracy we're talking about is necessarily an Ottawa crisis. It might be more an Esteban Saskatchewan crisis and a Chicoutumi Quebec crisis and a Truro Nova Scotia crisis. It's the smaller places that really have trouble making this transition because the internet demands scale in many cases. And hopefully entrepreneurs will like your village media model. And the fact that they're defying what everybody else is going through shows that it can't be done. Yep. 
And it's a big problem. So my first newspaper job was at the London Free Press, and they bulldozed the building that they worked out of for 40 years a couple months ago. There still is a London Free Press. They're renting a smaller facility, you know. They used to give the local government quite a thorough scrubbing whenever the local government made an important decision. They used to really follow what was going on at the local university, in the hospitals, in area business. And I mean, the guy who's the editor of the London Free Press today is a guy that I was an intern with 35 years ago. He's a wonderful guy. He just doesn't have the horses that he would need to cover the city the way it used to get covered. And people ask me, what's your solution? My answer is I don't have one. To this as to so many other things, I don't have a solution to how it's suddenly fashionable to root for Vladimir Putin in a war of invasion in the heart of Europe. Like, I don't have a clever business model for reversing that trend. Do you think that journalists who criticize policies should have solutions? I mean, ideally, but I think it's optional. I think the court gesture function is legitimate. And I think making it so that people have a harder time congratulating themselves for victories that haven't happened yet and that can't happen is a fair contribution to a debate. Let's end on circling back to Paul Wells. You've said that the new version of Paul Wells cares, and I quote, less about edge than I ever have. I'm working on a journalism that recognizes that it's a hard time and that the stakes are high, but that our hearts are going to help us if we let them. Now, that's very sentimental for a journalist, uh, first of all. Hugely sentimental. (laughs) What were you thinking when you said that? Well, the edge thing, I mean, I used to be on Twitter. And I was on Twitter during the historic days of the great Twitter wars when everybody was on Twitter trying to win some kind of argument. And if you did it by denigrating the other party in the argument or by cleverly dismissing their essential humanity, there were a lot of rewards in terms of sharing and clicks and likes and so on for that kind of essentially publicly being an asshole all the time. And I was a natural convert to that environment because I come from the National Post where we were cocky and loud institutionally and in the way that so many of the columnists did their craft. But after a while, I started to, first of all, I started to hate what Twitter was. I started to hate who I was on Twitter. And I remember something that one of the members of the Kids in the Hall said in an interview many years ago, where they said, we don't do satire anymore. We don't do smart-ass, silly version of someone else's work. Because the someone else put all their effort and all of their heart into the work, and it feels cheap for us to make fun of it. That's just one of a bunch of revelations that you have later in your life. And I think sometimes I'm still fairly tart in my observations, but making someone else feel bad so that I can feel good, being a smart ass so that other people can say, oh, he's so clever, you know, I think the times don't call for that. I think the stakes are high. I think our democracy is in peril. I think our assumptions of shared prosperity are at risk. And I feel better about myself when I spend more time looking for solutions than for problems. Well, I look forward to more solutions. I look forward to your valedictorian address when you accept your Hyman Solomon Award on April 11th in Toronto. And I want to thank you for joining us. It's a really thoughtful conversation. So thank you. Thanks for the invitation. It was fun. If you want to hear more from Paul, check out his podcast, The Paul Wells Show. And check out his Substack as well. 
If you want more wonk without normal knowledge, stay tuned for new episodes Thursdays. On Friday to Wednesday, fill your boots with our growing library of past interviews. This is Wonk. I'm Edward Greenspawn. Paul Wells joined us from Ottawa. Ottawa.